uh, we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. This is part number 32, if you can believe that or not. Uh, we have been in here for 32 uh, weeks, not in a row. We've taken some little bit of breaks. Uh, and I have just really enjoyed seeing the, this Gospel as it is presented, as it is showing us a, a perspective of Jesus' life that I have often described as one that is unexpected. One that doesn't actually fit the mold, so to speak. And I think that's very evident here as we approach this chapter, chapter 15. We left off last time, a couple of weeks ago, with chapter 14, where we left off with Jesus at this phony sham of a trial, as he is brought before the Sanhedrin in a very quick, rushed fashion. And at the end of this trial, if you remember, at the end of, or at sort of the end of chapter 14, uh, the members of the Sanhedrin are getting up and they're striking Jesus in the face, and they're, after they have blindfolded him, and they're trying to say, predict, prophesy, who has hit you, as sort of a mock test of his messiahship. And also at the very end of chapter 14, we left off with Peter denying his Lord, denying having any association or affiliation with Jesus three times in a row, which of course we know leaves him weeping. That's where we pick up here. We pick up right there with verse 15 where, or verse 1 of chapter 15 where it talks about immediately in the morning. This trial, this, all of these events have gone through the night. If you remember just previously, they have had this Passover uh, meal with all of his uh, disciples. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed, uh, prayed very fervently and very seriously. And then now all of these events have transpired. And now it's the morning. But I want you to notice quickly before we get to that part. Because I want you to see something very uh, interesting that I found uh, as I was studying this passage. If you look at verse 7, because I want you to see this person with whom Jesus is contrasted here as he is before the governor Pilate. Look at verse 7. In just the first phrase, where it says, And there was one named Barabbas. Barabbas is a really interesting character to me. He has, has some fascinating details in his history. All of them are very notorious, very infamous for stuff that he was a part of. Uh, so Jesus is here now brought into custody, uh, false custody by the uh, Sanhedrin council. And he's brought here and already in custody is this guy named Barabbas. He's already here sort of awaiting his fate, awaiting the word on what would become of his life by this uh, Roman governor, Pilate. He's a prisoner of Rome because he is involved, heavily involved, perhaps even the leader of an insurrection, a revolt against Rome. Such as where you get in verse 7 where it says, and there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. And they had committed murder in the rebellion. So here you have these Jewish rebels sort of going up against Rome, going up against the government, so to speak, and taking action by force. They are standing up to the man, so to speak. And in that case, and in that sense, you can kind of understand why the Jewish people would honestly favor Barabbas a little bit. He's sort of like a Jewish patriot. He's standing up for Israel. He's standing up against Roman tyranny. He is a nationalist. One who is deemed very highly in the eyes of many Jewish people. And in that sense also you can see how Barabbas, this criminal of Rome, was actually fulfilling some of the expectations the Jewish people had of what the Messiah would do. 
Remember everywhere we've constantly seen that Jesus has constantly reiterated, constantly reminded his apostles even that my kingdom is not of this world. It's not going to come uh, by violence, by force. It's not going to come by those means which honestly everywhere frustrated his followers. Why? Because they had expected They had expected that it would be he who would come and relieve Israel from Roman tyranny. Instead, you see here, Barabbas, a criminal, is the one who is doing it. I was just reminded of that verse. Actually, go go with me. I just want to read it to you because it it always stands out to me. If you go to Matthew 26, keep your finger in Mark 15. Go to Matthew 26. Uh, That was that verse I was just kind of referencing. This is Matthew's account of the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember when the mob comes to arrest Jesus, there's that one uh, guy who comes out uh, to uh, sort of put Jesus in chains. And one of Jesus' apostles takes out his sword and actually tries to cut off the guy's head, but he misses and cuts off his ear. (laughs) And remember what Jesus' words were? Look at verse 52. Matthew 26, 52, he says, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus or in this way? He tells Peter, put your sword away. My kingdom is not going to come by those means. My kingdom is not going to be established by the way that you think it is. That's not how it would be realized. So you have Barabbas. You're back in Mark 15. You have this figure, Barabbas, sort of filling that void a little bit, so to speak, of their expectations of the Messiah. But also why Barabbas is intriguing to me is his name. There was one already in custody named Barabbas. You know what it means? Son of the father. Bar meaning son. Abba being, meaning, meaning father. So really, in a very metaphorical way, I think, not perhaps by accident, but very, uh, perhaps very uh, planned. In this moment, the Jewish mob is literally crying out for the release of Barabbas and actually crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus. They are cheering for a false Messiah while the true Messiah is right there in front of them. They are championing for the release and the pardon of a false Messiah while condemning the true one that was standing right in their midst. And such is the tragic scene that we have in front of us. That the people who were everywhere hoping for Messiah are literally spitting in the face of the Messiah right in front of them. And here I think that's where we get this incredible picture in Mark chapter 15. In this acceptance of Barabbas in the denunciation of Jesus, we have sort of coming into the, into the forefront a picture of the Messiah that we want versus the Messiah that we need. And Barabbas really represents the Messiah that we want. He is coming and doing what we expect him to do. Jesus is not. He's doing everywhere, everything unexpected. He's coming and he's dying. And you see, this is the whole point. 
We don't need someone just to rescue us from earthly corruption that is all around us, that we see in front of us, that we see with our eyes. We need someone to rescue us from the corruption that is inside of us, that is deep within our souls. Uh, Put it simply, we need a savior. And this is what Jesus has come to be. This is what Jesus has come to do. So this morning, very quickly, I want to look at four Four instances in the way that Jesus is this Savior, this Messiah that we need and not necessarily the one that we want. So now jump back up to verse 1. Because first of all, I want you to see Jesus' silence. Jesus' silence. Look back at verse 1. It says, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said unto him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. So now it is early Friday morning, Good Friday, if you're kind of keeping track of Holy Week days, so to speak. And now Jesus has been hastily brought before Pontius Pilate by the Sanhedrin council. Remember, if you go back to chapter 14, they are holding an illegal council, by the way, a, a council that is not allowed to actually happen because it's happening at night. And they're trying to figure out what charge are we going to bring uh, uh, upon Jesus And here you have in the morning, they held another consultation, as it says there in verse 1. They meet together again. They get their heads together. Let's try and figure out what we're going to charge, we're going to put officially on Jesus as they bring him before Pilate. And what's their charge? The only thing is, as Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Again, going back to chapter 14, you remember the only thing that they can stick on Jesus is the fact that he is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be God when they think that he is actually not God and they charge him with blasphemy. It's the only charge they can really come up with. And yet notice how this charge here in verse 2 of chapter 15 has been sort of twisted from that religious one. Of being the son of God, the promised king, to now being more of a political one. Notice Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said unto him, it is as you say. Pilate, of course, a representative, a governor of Rome, the governor of Judea in this time. He would really be disinterested if this was just a concern about a blasphemous teacher of the Jews. As a Roman official, that really would have no bearing on him. He would be like, yeah, whatever. Okay, why does Rome care about that? But notice the Sanhedrin has twisted it in such a way that they are emphasizing sort of the the political side of this charge. And he would, Rome would have an interest in anyone who is claiming to be king. Claiming to be more sovereign than their king Caesar. And such is why this charge of the blasphemy then is morphed into this charge of sedition almost. Because this would get Rome's attention. This would get Rome's uh, notice. And again, this is precisely opposite of everything that Jesus has been teaching up to this point. He has never once claimed that he has come to make a political statement or make a political stand or do something in the way that would actually meet all of those expectations of Israel's people. 
He has always emphasized that my kingdom, as he says in John 18, 36, is not of this world. It's not of material things that you can see and you can make and that you can manufacture with your hands. My kingdom is a spiritual one. That's the charge that they bring up to him later about him being, when they accuse him of being insurrectionist for trying to tear down the temple and raise it back up in three days. He's not talking about the physical temple. He's talking about his body. He is the kingdom of God here on this earth. And it's going to be established not by what they think because it's going to be established by death. Even still, these Sanhedrin experts, as it says in verse 3, they accuse him of many things. Anything that they can to rid themselves of. Of Jesus. And it's interesting to me. That they're not just interested in ridding themselves of Jesus. They're actually interested in ridding themselves of any sort of culpability or guilt while doing so. They want to wash their hands of Jesus. And have all of the blood on Rome's hands. So this is why they're trying to any way possible to get him convicted by Rome. They don't want this blood on their hands. They don't want this guilt on their conscience, even while they're executing this horrendous plan. Which, if you go later on, if you go into Acts, this is the exact thing that Peter preaches against. He preaches everywhere, the fact in front of the Sanhedrin, that this blood is on your hands. They couldn't get away with it. They didn't get away with it. But they're determined to do so. And they are accusing him of many things, as it says in verse 3. But notice what gets Pilate's attention. Verse 3 again. And the chief priests accused him of many things. But he answered nothing. And then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing. So Pilate marveled. Despite all of the fraudulent accusations that were being laid at Jesus' feet. All of the corrupt ceremony of this trial. Jesus was silent. He answered nothing. Pilate had never seen a witness like this. He had never seen a defendant like this before. Jesus wasn't trying to grasp at anything in order to clear his name. He wasn't trying to excuse himself. Or he wasn't trying to defend himself. He wasn't trying to do anything. He was accepting every charge. Why? Because they were true. He was the king of the Jews. They meant it in a different way. But he is actually saying it is as you say. I am the king. And not just the king of the Jews. I'm the king of everything that you see. They were meaning it for evil. Jesus was saying that this is true. But his accusers were insistent that he was a phony. That he was a liar. That he was a crazed man. They couldn't see. Even these religious experts who are plotting. Who have been plotting since the beginning of his ministry. They could not see the bigger picture that Jesus was coming and establishing. It was coming and vindicating. That he was carrying out as God's son. So he stands in silence. But notice verse 6. Because not only do we have Jesus' silence. We also have Jesus' substitution. Look at verse 6 where it says. Now at the feast he was accused. Or excuse me. He was accustomed 
to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he has always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So here Jesus is standing here, sort of having his life juxtaposed against the life of a criminal. And we are told of this incredible custom that had accompanied the Passover festival here in Rome, where a prisoner of Rome would be released by sort of popular request. Now, it's not really certain where this custom kind of originated from or where it came from or how it started. Um, You can imagine if Rome is the dominating force in order to gain favor from the people they are dominating over, this would be a very favorable thing to do. In a sense, I think it's a very sort of politically expedient thing that this Pontius Pilate is doing. He's uh, releasing a prisoner in order to gain favor from the people. And nevertheless, they are aware of this. As it says, the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done. Continue this custom. And here he says, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to, as he says in verse 9, to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate was in, I think, the worst possible situation. He was, we could call it a catch-22. No possible winning outcome for him. Release Jesus and risk further revolt. Risk further revolt by the people at this point. Because they're in a uproar. They have been stirred up to sort of a violent haste. So he could do that and risk losing his position. Rome would come in and and get him out of office. Because obviously he can't control his people. He can't actually govern his people well. So we'll get him out. Risk his position. Or, on the other hand, he could release Barabbas, a known convict, a known murderer, a known criminal and terrorist of Rome, risk him and gain popularity with the people. You can see Pilate's situation. And in some senses, I feel for Pilate. (laughs) Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He didn't necessarily believe that Jesus was the Messiah or the king. He knew that Jesus hadn't really committed crimes. As it says there, he knew that the the Sanhedrin had only handed him over because of envy. Because of jealousy under false pretenses. Pilate was unimpressed with their arguments, with their accusations. Jesus was actually no apparent real threat. He didn't look like a king. He didn't have any sort of, uh, sort of occupying force. He didn't have an army. He didn't come in to the city on a horse, on a stallion. He came in on a colt, on a donkey. He doesn't look like a king. In Pilate's mind, Jesus just appeared to be another crazy Jewish teacher who was claiming to be God. And yet... He addresses the crowd once more. Look at verse 11 where it says, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd. They instigated them. They stoked the flames, so to speak, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. 
Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. The people at this point want blood. They want something to happen. And Pilate is so unsure of what to do with Jesus that he leaves the ultimate fate of this man up to the crowd. And here we get that first instance of Pilate's cowardness. He doesn't want the blood on his hands either. (laughs) He doesn't want the guilt on his record either. He wants to assign it all to the multitude. Okay, you want to do with him what you will, I'll, I'll let you do it. And you see that in the first phrase of verse 15 where it says, this to me is one of the most saddest phrases. Where it says, they cried out all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Pilate knew the truth, and he did the exact opposite. He knew what was perhaps ethically and morally right, yet in this moment, and he did exactly the opposite. He let popular favor, he let his reputation outweigh the need to do what is right. Wanting to gratify the crowd. In an effort to appease the masses, he orders the crucifixion of an innocent man, Jesus, and the pardon of a guilty man, Barabbas. An incredibly tragic scenario where Pilate is left doing the politically expedient thing instead of the thing that I think perhaps he knew was right. He protects himself, it's his self preservation. He's protecting his position. And how sad too. That here, after just a few short days prior, remember what this crowd was chanting? Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! As Jesus rode on that colt into the city. And now, what are they chanting? Crucify him! This is the contempt and the disdain and the unbelief of mankind at the forefront. And so don't let this moment pass by without realizing fully and truly what this moment is. This is the Jewish mob. This is mankind crying out for a murderer to have life while crying out for the giver of all life to be murdered. This is what is occurring. This is what Jesus is substituting himself for. He is taking the place of a guilty man. Even as he stands innocent. Even as he stands righteous. And such is what he has done for all of us. He stands in our guilty place. He stands in our place of committing murder, sin, Of lying, of falsehood. He stands in our place of envy and guilt and rage. He stands in that place. He is our substitute. But notice quickly verse 16. Jesus' silence. Jesus' substitution. And look at thirdly. Jesus' sacrifice. Because from here to the end. We are made to read some of the most difficult verses. I think in all of scripture. Notice verse 16, it says, Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. 
And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, and put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And then they struck him on the head with a reed, and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. You know, for all of our familiarity with the scenes of Jesus' crucifixion, with all of the sort of depictions of that scene in popular culture and art and what have you, I think we have a fraction of a knowledge of what Jesus experienced here. We have a very limited understanding of Jesus' anguish and agony. You have to let the picture in your mind's eye. You have to see that and let it go even infinitely beyond that. Because that's what Jesus endured. You notice all the gospel writers, they record very similar things in all of their accounts of Jesus' passion. And usually it's just the cursory detail, he was crucified. They don't give you all the nasty, gory, gruesome details of what that means. Of what happens when someone is crucified. And I think that's okay. It should be enough to know that this is the fate that Jesus sacrificed himself for. This is the sacrifice that Jesus would subject himself to. This is what made us ought to make us wonder, ought to make us worship. That this is being born by God's own son. All the spitting, all the mocking, all the fake worship, all the fake uh, sort of uh, uh, notions of royalty, all the, all the, the hitting and the spitting, all of that. Jesus is sacrificing himself to all of that. Why? Because of your sin and mine. This is, I think, what we're supposed to come away with from these verses. Jesus' incredible sacrifice. That he subjects himself to all of this cruelty and scorn and ridicule for you and for me. He sacrifices himself as one who is deemed a criminal. In the place of one who should have been crucified. In the place of one who should have been ridiculed and scorned and mocked and cruelly dealt with. Instead he takes all of that on his own shoulders and in his own body. But notice fascinatingly, look at verse 21. Because we are given another instance of, uh, throughout Holy Week of God, of Jesus needing human assistance. Look at verse 21 where it says, And then they compelled a certain man of Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. So it's fascinating to me. This is the custom that in Roman crucifixions, the one who was to be crucified would carry their cross to the scene of their crucifixion. And Jesus is actually here in this moment unable to do so. Weak from all that he has endured, yes. How interesting that uh, just like at the very beginning of Holy Week, Jesus needed to ask for a cult to go into city. 
And then uh, right before Passover, Jesus needed to ask that man permission for use of his upper room. And here, a third instance of the one who is the Lord over all things needing human aid. Yes, to carry his cross. This to me is indicative of just Jesus' intense suffering and sacrifice at this juncture. You know what? Because he's not just bearing a wooden cross. He's bearing the weight of all of the world's sin. This is what is crushing him in this moment. Not just a piece of wood that he would soon be nailed to. It's the weight of all of the world's sin is on his shoulders. And he's being crushed under the weight of it. Brought down to his knees. Exhausted physically because of the spiritual burden that he was soldiering. So it is. He marches towards Golgotha. As it says in verse 22. And he brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine whatever, what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And here, this is the awful heights of Jesus' humiliation. The awful extremities and reaches of man's dastardly disbelief are being come to uh, come about right here as they are crucifying their Savior as he was saving them. Which leads me to the fourth thing. Jesus' silence, Jesus' substitution, Jesus' sacrifice, but notice Jesus' surrender. Listen to these verses again. Look at verse 25. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you, destroy, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And come down from the cross. Likewise the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ the king of Israel descend now from the cross. That we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him. Reviled him. This. Is what Jesus surrendered himself to. To the trivialization of his position. To the denigration of his kingship. To all of the awful ends that we see here. But what jumps out to me. Is verse 28. Where it says. So the scripture could be fulfilled. That he was numbered among the transgressors. Of course a reference to Isaiah 53. Where it says, the one who is righteous is unashamed to be counted among the wicked. And in fact, it says elsewhere in the same chapter that he has his grave among the wicked. And guess what? This is what Jesus has done for you and for me. He is unashamed to be uh, counted as one who is a transgressor so that we, the transgressors, might be made right. 
He is counted among criminals so that criminals might have freedom, might have pardon, might have forgiveness. The sinless one is here surrendering himself to stand in the sinner's stead so that the sinners might have righteousness. This is what Jesus is fulfilling here in this moment. He's fulfilling all righteousness. How? By taking and dying and paying the full penalty for your sin and for mine. All of it. He's taking on himself. This is what many uh, uh, scholars and theologians, they call the great exchange. Which is what? A one-way transaction, let me remind you, wherein Jesus takes your sin. He takes it from you. And he puts it on himself. And in exchange, he holds out in front of you his righteousness. An exchange where he is the only operative. Where he is the only one who is working. He is the one who executes this exchange and holding out for free righteousness. By faith. In his shed blood on this ratty Roman cross. This is what Jesus is doing here in this moment. And notice how these ones who are passing by are mocking him. That he can't save himself. That this one who is making all these bold claims about tearing down the temple and raising it back up. That he can't even save himself. The one who is everywhere healing lepers and and raising other people from the dead. Those rumors. He can't even save himself. Let him come down now and we will believe. Of course they wouldn't. He was doing everything everywhere all the time. And they still didn't believe. They wouldn't believe in this moment either. But I want you to see that it's not that Jesus could not save himself. It's that he chose not to. Jesus chose not to save himself. And I think very clearly that this is one of the aspects of that cup that Jesus talks about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember where he's, he's praying to the Father and he says, let this cup pass from me. It's the cup of suffering. The cup of bearing the weight of all of mankind's sin. And here he is choosing. Choosing not to save himself so that he could save others. That he could save you and me. The scene of the crowd and the religious experts here reviling Jesus as he is hanging helplessly on this cross. It gives us this awful picture of mankind rejecting their Savior while he is saving them. Sort of like if you're drowning, you're in the middle of the ocean, and you're fighting off the lifeguard. This is what man is doing. Blaspheming, pushing off, reviling, rejecting his Savior while he is saving them. And this is what Jesus has done. For you and for me this morning. We cannot fathom. The depths of Jesus' misery here on this cross. As we can read. This crucifixion lasts for hours. From the third hour as it says to the sixth hour. And then it says uh, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land. Until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. And then some ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then, uh, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Here, Jesus' full suffering comes to a climax. And I want to be clear, because I've tried to do all my study and, and do all the uh, theological parsing, and, and people want to meander around this moment about how, you know, Jesus wasn't really forsaken, because and, and that would uh, conflate the Trinity or something like that. And it's all these theological scholarly meanderings around this very important point, which I w- just want to say, this Bible is how I read this, that Jesus was separated from his father in this moment because of sin. Let the scholars do what they want to do in academics. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because in this moment, he shouldered all of the world's sin, all of your disobedience, all of your unbelief, all of your rebellion, all of your lustful thoughts, all of your foul words and your cruel remarks and your backstabbing words and your gossip and your lying, every vengeful action that you've wanted to take out and you've just held within your heart. He died for that too. All of those represent a thorn in Jesus's head. All of that represent the nails in his hands. He withstood all of that for you and for me. And when I think about my life. And the sin that I've committed. And I think about what Jesus did for me. I cannot help but just weep. That my words. My actions led to this. That my sin led to this. That Jesus, the just one, would take the place of the unjust. So that the unjust might become just. So that the sinners might become holy. Every bead of blood that drips down Jesus' forehead on this cross is a payment for your sin and for my sin. The full extent of the payment for sin was paid by Jesus. All of it. It is finished, he cries in John 19. Once for all, the apostles talk about in the rest of the New Testament. That this sacrifice, this atonement was once and for all. It was infinite. Which means, yes, that Jesus died in, let's say, 33 AD on the cross. Again, he didn't just die and cover the sins of all those who went before him and all those who are alive now. His sacrifice extends even to this moment. 
Even right now, this sacrifice is true and once for all, it is powerful enough to save you. Even here now in the 21st century, 2,000 odd years later, after this has happened, he is still powerful enough to save. He can save, as it says in Hebrews, to the uttermost. This is the Messiah that we need. A Messiah who takes our place. Who bears all of our sin. Who shoulders all of our shame and he takes it away. A Messiah who dies and lives again. Because he is the Lord of all. This is the Messiah you need. Do you know him this morning? Do you know this Savior? Do you know that he's your Savior? It's not just enough to know him that this is what he did. Do you know that he did it for you? That he did this to save your soul. Yes, he is also executing God's redemption of all things. And he is fulfilling all of these plans to redeem the world. To redeem creation itself. But along with that, he is dying to redeem your soul. A soul of a sinner that he foreknew from the, before the foundations of the world, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. He knew you and he knew your sins and he knew your proclivities towards those temptations. And he is dying for them all right here. This is Jesus. The Savior we all need. Let us pray.